0: Chapter Eleven of the Red River Colony A Chronicle of the Beginnings of Manitoba by Louis Aubrey Wood. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Eleven Fort William Fort William was the Mecca of the traders and voyagers who served the Northwest Company. It was the divisional point and the warehousing centre of sixty trading posts. No less than five thousand persons were engaged in the trade which centred at Fort William. During the season from May to September, the traffic carried on at the fort was of the most active character. A flotilla of boats and canoes would arrive from Lachine with multifarious articles of commerce for inland barter. These boats would then set out on their homeward journey, laden with peltry gathered from far and near every season two or three of the principal partners of the company arrived at the fort from montreal they were the hyperborean nabobs who travelled with whatever luxury wealth could afford them on the express service by lake and stream at this time fort william had the proportions of a good-sized village its structures were of wood and were of all shapes and sizes one commodious building near the centre of the fort fronted by a wide veranda immediately caught the eye of the visitor. It contained a council hall, the mercantile parliament chamber of the Nor'westers. Under the same roof was a great banqueting hall, in which two hundred persons could be seated. In this hall were wont to gather the notables of the Northwest Company, and any guests who were fortunate enough to gain admission. Here, in the heart of the wilderness, there was no stint of food when the long tables were spread, Chefs brought from Montreal prepared savoury viands, the brimming bowl was emptied and too often replenished, and the songs of this deep-throated race of merchantmen pealed to the rafters until revelry almost ended in riot. At one end of the room stood the bust of Simon McTavish, placed so that his gaze seemed to rest upon the proprietors and servants of the company he had called into being. About the walls hung numerous portraits— one of the reigning monarch, George III, another of the Prince Regent, a third of Admiral Lord Nelson. Here, too, was a painting of the famous Battle of the Nile, and a wonderful map of the fur-bearing country, the work of the intrepid explorer, David Thompson. The unexpected appearance of Lord Selkirk in the vicinity of Fort William found the Nor'westers off their guard, and created a great sensation— it was a matter of common knowledge among the nor'westers that selkirk was on his way to the red river with a squad of armed men but they understood that he would follow the route leading past their fort at fond du lac there is evidence to show that a plot to compass selkirk's death or seizure had been mooted some weeks before john burke on the road to fort william as a prisoner had overheard a conversation between Alexander MacDonald and several other partners of the Northwest Company. This conversation had occurred at night, not far from Rainy Lake. According to the story, Burke was lying on the ground, seemingly asleep, when the partners, standing by a campfire, fell to discussing their recent coup at the Forks. Their talk drifted to the subject of Lord Selkirk's proposed visit to Assiniboia, and Macdonald assured the others that the Northwest Company had nothing to fear from Selkirk, and that if extreme measures were necessary, Selkirk should be quietly assassinated. The half-breeds, he declared, will take him while he is asleep, early in the morning. Macdonald went so far as to mention the name of a bois-brûlé who would be willing to bring Lord Selkirk down with his musket if necessary. Burke told to his fellow prisoners Patrick Corcoran and Michael Hayden what he had overheard. It thus happened that when Hayden now learnt that the founder of Assiniboia was actually camping on the Caministiquia, he became alarmed for his safety. Though a prisoner, he seems to have had some liberty of movement. At any rate, he was able to slip off alone and to launch a small boat. Once afloat, he rowed to the island where Chatelaine and his voyagers had halted on the way to Fort William. The water was boisterous, and Hayden had great difficulty in piloting his craft. He gained the island, however, and told Chatelaine of his fear that Lord Selkirk might come to harm. Hayden returned to the fort, and was there taken to task and roughly handled, for his temerity in going to see one of Lord Selkirk's servants." on august twelfth the second section of the contingent arrived with the experienced campaigners from the moment they raised their tents lord selkirk began to show a bold front against the nor'westers captain de was entrusted on the day of his arrival with a letter from selkirk to william macgillivray the most prominent partner at fort william in this macgillivray was asked his reason for holding in custody various persons whose names were given and was requested to grant their immediate release. McGillivray was surprisingly conciliatory. He permitted several of the persons named in the letter to proceed at once to Selkirk's camp, and assured Lord Selkirk that they had never been prisoners. John Burke and Michael Hayden he still retained, because their presence was demanded at the courts in Montreal. Acting as a justice of the peace. Selkirk now held a court in which he heard evidence from those whom MacGillivray had surrendered. Before the day was over, he had secured sufficient information, as he thought, to justify legal action against certain of the partners at Fort William. He decided to arrest William MacGillivray first, and sent two men as constables with the warrant against MacGillivray. On the afternoon of August thirteenth, these officers went down the river to the fort. Along with them went a guard of nine men fully armed. While the guard remained posted without, the constables entered the fort. They found MacGillivray in his room, writing a letter. He read the warrant which they thrust into his hand, and then without comment said that he was prepared to go with them. His only desire was that two partners, Kenneth Mackenzie and Dr. John MacLachlan, might accompany him to furnish bail. The constables acceded to this request, and the three nor'westers got into a canoe and were paddled to point de Maronne. The officers conducted their prisoners to the Earl of Selkirk's tent. When Selkirk learned that the two other partners of the Northwest Company were also in his power, he resolved upon an imprudent act, one which can scarcely be defended. Not only did he refuse his prisoner bail, he framed indictments against Mackenzie and McLaughlin, and ordered the constables to take them in charge. A short examination of William MacGillivray convinced Lord Selkirk that he would not be going beyond his powers were he to apprehend the remaining partners who were at Fort William. To accomplish this he drew up the necessary papers, and then sent some constables to make the arrests. Twenty-five Dameron soldiers under Captain D'Orcenon and Lieutenant Fauchet were detailed as an escort when the constables strode up the river bank to the fort to perform their official duty they found a great throng of canadians half-breeds and indians gathered about the entrance d'orsenon and the bulk of the escort remained behind on the river within easy call near the gateway the officers sought two of the partners whom they were instructed to apprehend and immediately served them with warrants a third partner john macdonald made a sturdy show of resistance he declaimed against the validity of the warrant, and protested that no stranger dare enter the fort until William MacGillivray was set free. A scramble followed. Some of the Nor'westers tried to close the gate, while the constables struggled to make their way inside. When one of the constables shouted lustily for aid, the bugle blew at the boats. This was by prearrangement the signal to Captain Mathey at Pointe de Moran that the constables had met with opposition. The signal, however, proved unnecessary. In spite of the angry crowd at the entrance, Selkirk's men pushed open the gate of the fort. They seized MacDonald, who struggled fiercely, and bore him away towards the boats. The soldiers marched up from the boats, and in a moment Fort William was in their possession. Before further help arrived, in response to the bugle-call, the struggle was over. Six partners of the Northwest Company were taken to the boats and carried to Lord Selkirk's encampment. These were John MacDonald, Daniel Mackenzie, Alan MacDonald, Hugh McGillis, Alexander Mackenzie, and Simon Fraser, the last named being the noted explorer. Captain Nons stationed a guard within the fort, and himself remained behind to search the papers of those who had been arrested. By the time Lord Selkirk had finished the examination of his fresh group of prisoners, the hour was late. He did not wish to keep any of the partners in confinement, and so he arranged that they should go back to their quarters at the fort for the night. The prisoners promised that they would behave in seemly fashion, and do nothing of a hostile nature. There is evidence to show that before morning, many papers were burned in the mess-room kitchen at the fort. Word was also brought to Lord Selkirk that a quantity of firearms and ammunition had been removed from Fort William during the night. In consequence of this information, he issued another warrant, authorizing a search for arms. When the search was made, fifty or more guns and fowling-pieces were found hidden among some hay in a barn." Eight barrels of gunpowder were also found lying in a swampy place not far from the fort, and the manner in which the grass was trampled down indicated that the barrels had been deposited there very recently. When Selkirk learned of this attempt to remove arms and ammunition, he felt justified in adopting stringent measures. He ordered what was practically an occupation of Fort William— most of the Canadians, Bois-Brulé, and Indians in the service of the Northwest Company, were commanded to leave the fort and across to, to the other side of the river. Their canoes were confiscated. The nine partners were held as prisoners and closely watched. Selkirk's force abandoned Point de maronne and erected their tents on ground near Fort William. The hearing was continued, and it was finally decided that the accused should be committed for trial at York, and conducted thither under a strong guard. Selkirk had not exceeded his authority as a justice of the peace in holding the investigations and in sending the partners for trial to the judicial headquarters of the province, but he had also seized the property of the Northwest Company and driven its servants from their fort, and this was straining his legal powers. The task of taking the nine partners to York was entrusted to Lieutenant Fauchet. Three canoes were provisioned for the journey. Indians regularly employed by the Northwest Company were engaged as canoe men and guides. On August eighteenth, the party set out from Fort William. At first, the journey went tranquilly enough. On the eighth day, about one o'clock in the afternoon, the party drew up their canoes on Isle aux Parisiennes in Whitefish Bay to take dinner. A heavy westerly breeze sprang up but they were on the leeward side of the island, and did not notice its full strength. Lieutenant Fouche had misgivings, however, and before he would resume the journey, he consulted his prisoner, William MacGillivray, who was an expert canoeman. MacGillivray was confident that the traverse to Sault Ste. Marie could be made in safety if the Indian guides exercised great caution. The guides, on the other hand, objected to leaving the island. Their advice was not heeded, and the three canoes put out. Very soon they were running before a squall and shipping water. The first canoe turned its prow in the direction of isle o lying to the left, and the other two followed this example. Near isle o there were some shoals destined now to cause tragic disaster. In attempting to pass these shoals the leading canoe was capsized. The others, so heavily laden that they could do nothing to rescue their companions, Paddled hurriedly to shore, unloaded part of their cargoes, and then hastened to the spot where their comrades were struggling in the stormy waters. But it was too late. In spite of the most heroic efforts, nine of the twenty one persons belonging to the wrecked canoe were drowned. Kenneth Mackenzie, of the Northwest Company, was one of those who perished. Six of the others were Indians. The remaining two were discharged soldiers another canoe was procured at Sault Ste. Marie. The party continued its journey, and reached York on September 3. Fauchet at once sought the attorney-general in order to take proper legal steps, but found that he was absent. The prisoners, meanwhile, applied for a writ of habeas corpus, and Fauchet was instructed to take them to Montreal. This was to take them to the home of the Nor'westers, where they would be supported by powerful influences." On September 10, when the partners arrived in Montreal, they were at once admitted to bail. Meanwhile, Lord Selkirk continued to exercise full sway over Fort William and its environs. He had himself no misgivings whatever with regard to the legality of his treatment of the Nor'westers. In his view, he had taken possession of a place which had served, to quote his own words, the last of any in the British dominions, as an asylum for banditti and murderers, and the receptacle for their plunder. During the ensuing winter, he sent out expeditions to capture the posts belonging to the Northwest Company at Mishapicatan, Rainy Lake, and Fond du Lac. In March, he commissioned a part of his followers to advance into the territory of Assiniboia to restore order. The veterans whom he sent artfully arranged their journey so that they should approach the forks from the south. The Nor'westers in Fort Douglas were wholly unaware that a foe was advancing against them. On a blustering night, amid storm and darkness, Selkirk's men crept up to the walls carrying ladders. In a trice they had scaled the ramparts, and the fort was in their possession. On the first day of May, 1817, Lord Selkirk himself went forward to the west from Fort William, taking with him the bodyguard which he had procured at Drummond Island. He followed the fur-trader's route up the Kaministiquia to Dog Lake, thence by way of the waters which connect with Rainy Lake, on to the Lake of the Woods, and down the rushing Winnipeg. After a journey of seven weeks he emerged from the forest-clad wilderness, and saw for the first time the little row of farms which the toil of his long suffering colonists had brought into being on the open plains. End of chapter eleven.